David is another uh, uh, rising star in the uh, field of hepatitis C treatment, uh, an expert on antiviral resistance and a lot of the uh, uh, virologic aspects of treatment. David's going to talk to us about uh, looking beyond the telapavir, bosepavir, already approved DAAs that Suzanne just went over, and, and look to the, to the next phase uh, of, of drugs uh, uh, and the resistance implications when we consider their use in practice. So David's an associate professor of medicine at University of California at San Diego. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Dave. Um, so yes, right now I think we want to kind of build on some of the concepts and issues that have at least been raised by Dr. Shaw and Dr. Nagy and talk more about resistance and then talk about what's coming down the line. So first I'll start off with addressing resistance issues with the currently approved medications, bosepavir and telaprevir. So, and this is going to build on some concepts that I think uh, Dr. Shaw presented you with, but I wanted to kind of compare and contrast HIV and hepatitis C um, particularly looking at viral characteristics and how they relate to resistance development. Um, so right off the bat, kind of the engine driving resistance, obviously, is viral replication and turnover. Um, and here you see hepatitis C producing about 10 to the 12 variants per day in an infected person, so an extremely high rate of turnover, again, generating a swarm of mutants because of a virally of an error-prone viral polymerase, which acts twice in the replication cycle as well. So if we contrast to HIV, about a 100-fold higher amount of replication, both have error-prone polymerases, but again, the hepatitis C polymerase works both going from a positive strand to a negative strand and negative back to positive, where HIV-RT, the error-prone polymerase, only really acts once in the HIV life cycle. Um, they, there are no overlapping reading frames to constrain hepatitis C. Um, and then the thing that Dr. Shaw mentioned, that HIV has an extremely rapid infected cell turnover rate, whereas data from interferon monotherapy suggest a slower infected cell turnover rate for hepatitis C, the loss of infected hepatocytes with half-lives, probably on the order of several weeks, although it's highly variable between patients. Um, but what I'd like to really highlight, um, aside from the viral quasi-species, is that maybe it's not the infected cell turnover that we should be concerned about with hepatitis C, but really the, the replication unit, which, as was mentioned, is cytoplasmic, there's no integration involved in the replication life cycle, so this is really an ephemeral replication complex um, that in vitro data anyway suggests the replication complex in an individual one has a half-life maybe on the order of 10 to 20 hours, so around a day. And it's, that is what's turning over and actually can be eradicated from cells, um, which leads to the most dramatic difference, which would be that with hepatitis C, obviously we already realize cure is certainly possible, while as with HIV, really we're still in the mode of controlling disease, but uh, we have not attained a cure for all intents and purposes anyway for the majority of patients with HIV. Um, this is something that Susanna alluded to. Um, what was seen very early with hepatitis C protease inhibitors, and this was data from some of the telaprevir phase one trials where monotherapy was given for two weeks, was that you saw initially patients had a nice viral decline over the first several days, um, but subsequently what you saw was either a subsequent increase in viral load or plateaus in the majority of patients with continued exposure to the protease inhibitor. Um, and when sequencing was done at the end of dosing period for those patients who broke through or plateaued and had enough virus to sequence, what you saw was essentially almost complete replacement of wild type, at least in the quasi-species distribution, with resistant variants. Um, and we'll talk some more about these variants, but the ones we should really focus on are the 155 and the 36, particularly for patients with genotype 1A. Uh, and in those with um, 1, 1B genotypes, 156 position is what really comes out. Um, now, there was a group that had a continuous decline and was low enough by the end of 14 days that they didn't have enough virus to sequence. But even in these patients, when they looked um, several weeks to months later, you did see some resistant variants now as a more prominent component of the viral quasi-species. 
Um, if we think about resistant mutations or resistant variants, um, there certainly is a trade-off in fitness and generally the full change that mutation confers to the drug in question. Um, and this is a concept we're somewhat used to thinking about with HIV as well, um, where we kind of arbitrarily set wild type as 100% fitness and then look at percent variation from that in terms of replication. Um, and what you see is that um, some of the mutants that are particularly troublesome are not, not too bad in terms of fitness, um, although they don't generally cause a dramatic fold change in the activity of telapavir or bosepavir in this case. Um, and you can also see the appearance of some double mutants, which now start to cause higher fold changes and are more fit. Um, and this probably is a large portion of the explanation of why this is the most frequent variant we see in patients with genotype 1A, because it is both relatively fit and causes a pretty dramatic fold change in the EC50 to telapavir or bosepavir. Um, so this is some clinical trial data now. Um, to build on this point, this is, uh, these are from the PROVE 1 and 2 studies, some phase 2 studies with telapavir, showing you, again, the split by genotype, subtype that Susanna mentioned, um, 1As and 1Bs, and we see a difference in the resistance profile that's encountered on patients who fail. Um, these are patients who either broke through while they were still receiving the protease inhibitor or had relapse after the protease inhibitor was stopped. And what you can see here is with patients with genotype 1A, these are mostly orange bars or variations of orange, which are mutants at the position 155, with about you know, somewhere between 5 to 10% of patients experiencing breakthrough and about 10% experiencing a relapse after cessation of the protease inhibitor. Um, and you see a different pattern. One, you see less breakthrough in genotype 1Bs. Again, this is due to the resistance barrier issue that we'll come back to. And you see different colors here. Again, I don't want to belabor the point, but it's a different resistant variant that arises, generally position 156 in patients with genotype 1B if they do break through. And even here in black, you can see occasionally you see a, a relapse with wild-type virus with no resistant variants detected, at least by a population sequencing or down to a level of probably about 20 or 25 percent of the, the viral quasi-species. Um, another concept to bring up here is that obviously when we're looking at a protease inhibitor combined with interferon and ribavirin, the underlying interferon sensitivity of the patient goes a long way in determining what, how likely they are to break through with resistance. As you might expect, patients who are more interferon sensitive, so have a greater than one log decrease during the lead-in phase with, in the Bosepavir trial. So what you can see here is patients who are interferon sensitive, so again, over a log decrease in those first four weeks, have very low rates of resistant development during uh, triple combination therapy later on, whereas if you're interferon resistance and you're really relying heavily on that protease inhibitor, um, you see a lot of resistance development in patients who are then treated with bosepavir in combination with PEG and ribavirin. So I just want to kind of summarize what we know about or what we've seen with resistance development with bosepavir and telapavir before I talk about maybe some more esoteric resistance um, concepts and, and some of the other agents that are coming through the pipeline. So with triple therapy, um, from phase three data with bosepavir and telapavir trials, at the end of the day, all you look at all the patients who did not get an SVR, somewhere between 50 to 75% will have resistant variants detected. Um, and that's probably because there's a portion of patients who stopped early because of intolerance or noncompliance and other things, so you don't see 100%, obviously. If you look at specifically the 10 to 15% who have virologic failure on therapy, so they break through or relapse on therapy, um, there, almost all of them are, have resistant variants as the predominant species when, when they break through. Um, and again, there is this difference. If you see breakthrough, they tend to be high-fold change variants. For patients with genotype 1A, that's the 36 plus the 155 mutant. For those with 1B, it's generally the 156 position, which is kind of right in the active site of the protease. 
Um, and then if you see relapse, so patients who are off therapy and then have a subsequent viral relapse, you see lower full change variants, so the 155 or the 36 by themselves, or um, some other positions um, in 1Bs around the 156, but not the 3-anine the substitution. Um, coming back to how hepatitis C replicates and, and the difference between hepatitis C and HIV, again, there's no integration, there's no nuclear phase of replication, so we don't believe there's any phys physiologic way or viral replication-based mechanism for hepatitis C to develop latent infection or develop a viral reservoir. And that's at least suggested by some follow-up. This is data from Tilaprevir, so you can see these were all patients who had resistant variants after they completed in the phase three trials, so again, 74%. And they continued to sequence them and follow them after they were off therapy. Um, and what they, each of these hatch marks represents a, a time point where a patient was resequenced. And what they looked at was the prevalence of resistant, the resistant variant over time, and you can see from 74% right when they finished therapy and were sequenced, when they followed them up out to 16 months of follow-up, 96% of the patients had reverted to a wild type, at least by population sequencing again. This is not clonal sequencing or deep sequencing, so um, certainly there are still variants present at lower levels, but at least by population sequencing, everybody appeared to be back to wild type. Um, and if you look at the genotype subtypes, the, this decay varies, and it really relates directly to the variants they select for in the different subtypes and their fitness, um, with less fit variants decaying more rapidly. So I just want to talk about a case um, briefly. This is a 46-year-old Hispanic male. We saw this was actually the first patient we treated uh, with co-infection with one of the new agents. Um, he had a high viral load, 23 million, um, controlled HIV on an atazanavir-based regimen. He had cirrhosis on biopsy in 2008, but he didn't have any evidence of decompensation or hepatocellular carcinoma, so we started with uh, combination therapy with pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and telaprevir. And he went from 23 million to 2,672 at week four. Now, Susanna just gave you the stopping criteria, and so um, by week four, he was over 1,000. So technically, we should have stopped if we're extrapolating to mono-infected data anyway in a co-infected patient. This being our first patient, nobody wanted to stop. So we kept going. <laughs> we said 23 million to 2,600. That's a great response. We would never see that without a protease inhibitor. We, we can't stop now. He's cirrhotic. So we kept going naively. Um, and a week later, we repeated the viral load, and it was up to 3,100. So what would you do at this point? Would, would you send a resistance test? I don't have an ARS question here. It's kind of just you can nod or you can not say anything. We did. We were curious. So I want to bring up this point that there is a clinically available hepatitis C resistance test, and we'll come back to this in some of the later cases, I think, as well. Um, Dr. Thomas will talk a little bit more about it. But just so you know, it is out there, and it looks very similar if you've sent off a, you know, a, a a genotypic test for HIV, you get the same type of report. Um, but I think the real question is, right now, at this point in time, is there any real utility in this? We kind of did it. We were curious, although based on what I've shown you previously, you could probably guess the patient's going to have resistance, and you probably could even guess what resistance mutations they would have. So I think to have clinical utility for a resistance test, you need several things. First, you need alternative treatments if you're going to get a result back. Um, it's, is it going to impact how you do your therapy? Are you going to switch to an alternative therapy, which is what we might do with HIV, because we have so many options? Um, but, and then the other thing is that pre-existing variants, if you're talking about a naive patient where we do baseline resistant testing, are also going to impact your therapy, make you choose one therapy over another based on your genotype, um, and that also relies, obviously, on having alternative treatments. So I think it's pretty apparent that right now, with two agents approved that are completely cross-resistant, I don't really think there's any clinical utility in this at this time. Um, again, uh, we sent it out of kind of curiosity in this patient, and 
they, they couldn't amplify it anyway. We didn't, we didn't get a result even, in, even though we tried. So there you go. Um, and this just builds on what Suzanne alluded to previously in some of the several speakers, that with telaptivir and bosaptivir, they, from a resistance standpoint, are the same drug. They're completely cross-resistant. Um, and even some of the agents coming down the line that I'll talk a little bit more about really share, in terms of at least key resistance mutations at the 155 position and the 156, really complete cross-resistance. There are some even later generation compounds that may or may not handle some, some variants um, much better. So what about pre-existing resistant variants? If we talk about resistance testing, obviously one would be failures and looking to help you if you're going to switch therapy when we have more agents available. But is there any reason to do baseline resistance testing? So again, I already should, told you or alluded to this, that in phase three trial data with bocephavir and telaprevir, when they sequenced patients, about 5 to 7% had at baseline before being exposed to any drug detectable resistant variants. And this was by population sequencing. So they had a variant present in 20 or 25% of their quasi-species at least. In about 5% of patients, they could detect this. Now, if you go to ultra-deep sequencing and say you're going to have a cutoff of 0.5% for a variant, what shows up? Um, with non-nucleosides, and we'll talk more about this class of drugs, so these are allosteric inhibitors of the polymerase, um, you can find 10% where it's the majority of the viral population has a polymorphism at one of these allosteric sites that would be considered resistant to an individual drug. If you look down at a deep level, so below that 20%, but down to over 0.5%, you know, almost a quarter of patients will have evidence of resistant variants existing in their, in their pretreatment quasi-species. Um, and this just shows you kind of, they did 89 patients here. This was data from, uh, from Roche. And, you know, a, a number of patients popped up with different variants, and there are four, at least four allosteric sites, and there were resistance mutations scattered at all these sites. If we talk about protease inhibitors, I already mentioned that when they just did um, sequencing from phase three data, about 5% of patients had, had variants that were detectable by population sequencing. Actually, interesting that they didn't get much more when they looked even at a deeper level. They only detected about 7 to 8% had, had minority variants. But in some, including some of these mutations that we worry about very much, the 155s are present, and some at position 156 as well. And this just, again, shows you the, the 155 patients that they did deep sequencing on and showed preexistence of these variants. We presume at some level there's preexistence of almost all the variants at very low levels. And then finally, another class that we'll come back and talk about, two other classes. So nucleotides or nucleotides, the, the nucleotide inhibitor GS7977 has been mentioned. These are very exciting, and we'll come back to this, but um, at least in their deep sequencing database, they didn't find any preexisting resistant variants to the nucleoside nucleotide class, at least this, this S282T variant. And then NS5A inhibitors, again, another class we'll come back to, about 16% had detectable variants at baseline. Um, so you can find them. I think the, the, you know, the million-dollar question is what do they mean and do they impact clinical outcomes, and, and we don't know that answer yet. This is, I'm trying to get at that and, and give you an indication. So this, again, is from bocephavir phase 3 data. Again, 7% had detectable resistant variants at baseline. They grouped them into two categories. I've, I've colored them red here. So the red variants they found at baseline were ones that they also saw in clinical trials in patients who failed. So these were variants that they had good clinical data that these were selected for and patients failed with them. These other variants were positions that had been associated with changes in bocephavir activity in vitro, but don't necessarily appear on failure in the clinic. And so they grouped those two separately. And what they did then was looked at all their patients. Again, only 66 out of the 1,000 that they had treated had these baseline variants. What you can see, though, is if they were interferon responsive, so had a one-log decrease in PEG ribavirin, it didn't matter what you had at baseline. If you had any variant, it didn't seem to impact, probably because, again, interferon ribavirin could do a lot of the heavy lifting, and the protease was kind of just there to mop some stuff up. 
Now, if you looked at those patients who were poor interferon responders, so less than a log decrease during their lead-in, then you saw this dramatic result where none of the patients who had these baseline variants responded if they were also a poor interferon responder. Now, what I don't show you here, but I need to tell you, is that there were a total of six, six, seven patients in that group. So it was zero out of seven patients. So less than 1% of the baseline population where maybe the baseline resistant variant plus interferon non-response makes a difference. So, um, you know, you're not going to do baseline resistance testing to find a 1% of your patients that maybe, uh, uh, you know, you might not want to treat with bosepravir or tilaprevir in the setting of interferon therapy. Um, but I think an, an interesting thing to, to note. The only other thing I'll mention is there are some of the later generation protease inhibitors. There are certain polymorphisms that are much more prevalent that affect only certain drugs. And I've just highlighted this case. This is a, the Q80K, and it's a very present, prevalent polymorphism, particularly in patients with genotype 1A. About 22% of patients, if you sequence them, will have this variant um, at baseline. And it does result in about a you know, seven- to eight-fold change in the activity of this protease inhibitor. So it was looked at in their uh, phase two trial. This is in patients who are from the pillar study who are interferon naive. Um, and what you can see, and just focus on the green bars, the sustained virologic response rate. They looked at two doses of this protease inhibitor, 75 milligrams or 150 milligrams, had about 150 patients in each dosing arm. And what you can see is the rate of sustained virologic response in the lower group was significantly lower, uh, you know, over 20% lower if they had the baseline polymorphism present. The Q80K at baseline you know, only 57% had an SVR compared to about 83% if they didn't have the baseline polymorphism. Now, at the higher dose, you, large, you, you did a lot to wipe out that difference, and the 150-milligram dose is what is going forward. This didn't turn out to be significant in this study. Um, but I know that, you know, they are going to look at this very closely in Phase 3 to see if, if it makes a difference and there would be any role, you know, to screening at baseline to see if you have a Q80K maybe before you would, would use this compound. So now I want to move on and, and talk about resistance considerations for interferon-free regimens and then, and, give you, and then show you some of the data of interferon-free trials that we've seen thus far. Um, if I just to lead off, kind of give my overview of the classes and what I think are the good and bad things about each class. You know, protease inhibitors, obviously, we have available protease inhibitors. So they're established. We know they work in the combination with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And they're very potent. You know, three to four log decreases for even the first-generation compounds. Um, and certainly the ones coming down the road in phase three right now are also very potent. Um, there are some issues with PK. Most of them, um, the ones we have approved now, obviously, are TID or maybe BID. Um, but some of the ones coming down the road are going to improve significantly on PK being once a day. And side effect profiles also, much like, you know, what we saw with HIV when you first came out with ritonavir and dinavir, a lot of side effect profiles, frequent dosing. We'll see the same evolution as we get, you know, next generation HCV protease inhibitors. They're going to move to once or twice a day and have better side effect profiles. Um, the big problems, I think, in terms of uh, the protease inhibitors is this issue of cross-resistance, um, which I've highlighted, and drug-drug interaction potential. Most of these molecules tend to be heavily me metabolized through or affect the CYP um, 450 system, and particularly the isoenzyme 3A4. NS5A inhibitors, I'll show you some of the data, but they're extremely potent, four to five log drops with a lot of these agents. They already have great PK and look to have good side effect profiles. They're once a day and seem to be well tolerated. Um, but they, like protease inhibitors, have a very low barrier to resistance. Generally, a single, amino, a single nucleotide change results in a single amino acid change, and you lose most, if not all, the activity of the drug. And for right now, there really seems to be no difference with clinical NS5A inhibitors that are in trials in terms of their resistance profiles. They seem to all overlap. Um, so cross-resistance is going to be an issue with NS5A inhibitors. The polymerase inhibitors, nucleotides, 
They look to be very potent, particularly the later generations, once a day, and have an extremely high barrier to resistance, and that's really where they shine, uh, especially in the combination of interferon-free therapy. Um, and the side effect profile of the later generations looks very good as well. Kind of some of the early compounds were a little dicey and, and made people worry about this class, but it does appear that the later generation compounds really do have a pretty good safety profile. And then non-nucleosides, I already alluded to this. The nice thing is we have multiple targets, so there are multiple chemical scaffolds to build molecules off of. But the problem is they're, they're really modestly potent in most cases, and these compounds have the lowest barrier to resistance because these allosteric sites are not highly conserved. Um, so you can see a lot of variation that the virus tolerates pretty well at these sites. Um, and in terms of thinking about interferon-free therapy, Alan Perelson has done a lot of modeling and um, had this article that he was senior author on in, in Science Translational Medicine, just looking at kind of the replication kinetics of the virus, an estimated error rate for the polymerase, and kind of came up with guesses, really, or informed, informed guesses about how many resistance mutations you need to have your, your regimen cover to be successful if you're going to get rid of interferon and ribavirin. And what they, they could show is that probably in everybody, you have all single and double mutants that pre-exist before they ever see a drug. Um, then they posit that within a day of exposing somebody to a direct-acting agent, which is going to put selection pressure on the virus, you'll select out triple mutants. So they kind of came up with this idea of a four-resistance barrier um, regimen is what you might need to throw at the virus to be successful. Um, and I'll talk how this fits in and, and whether this holds up with some of the interferon-free regimens we've seen thus far or not. Um, but remember, it doesn't mean you need four drugs or three drugs. You need four resistance mutations. So if you have a very potent uh, medication that requires multiple resistance mutations to really lose its activity, that might fulfill a large part of this burden. So polymerase inhibitor resistance, uh, I mentioned the allosteric sites, so there are at least four of them. All have their unique resistance signatures, which it's you know, not really worthwhile trying to remember each of these now. And then we have the active site, which has a different resistance profile. And there are you know, clinical compounds really at all these allosteric sites, and that's the nice thing about polymerase inhibitors. Um, there is potential for some cross-resistance at, at the palm sites with two different types of palm inhibitors. Um, but the problem with the non-nucleoside sites, especially this is monotherapy where you see initial drop and then everybody rebounding with resistant variants if they continue to be exposed over 14 days to a non-nucleoside inhibitor. And then what I showed here is one of the non-nucleosides to try to just give you an idea of the variability of responses among patients. And again, this gets back to the issue that these sites are not highly conserved. And, and there are polymorphisms at these sites where you'll see a lot of variable activity even within genotype 1 or even within subtypes for some of these non-nucleosides. And that remains, I think, an issue for this class. The nucleotides, nucleosides, I've mentioned that they have a very high barrier to resistance. And why is this? Well, it's several things. So one, if you look at... Um, an S282T resistant variant and how it affects a nucleoside, you can see it only causes about a three-fold shift in the EC50. So the selected resistance mutation doesn't change the EC50 of the compound to a significant extent, at least in vitro. Um, so one, there's a low-fold change in EC50. And then if you look over here, this is relative fitness, so wild type is set to one. And if you look out here at the end are the uh, nucleoside polymerase-resistant mutants, these last three columns. And what you can see is their fitness is all very much lower than wild type, somewhere estimated between 5 to maybe 15% of wild type. So they're low fitness, low full change in EC50, and when you put all that together, um, that's when you get a high resistance barrier compound, and that's what we really have with the nucleosides and nucleotides. I've alluded to NS5A inhibitors. Here's some monotherapy data. First, again, as I, I mentioned, they're very active with low picomolar range EC50, so very potent. 
They do our broad uh, genotype coverage, so they do hit a lot of the genotypes outside of genotype 1. Um, and in some early phase 2 study presented at ICAC, uh, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, 83% sustained virologic response rate with combination therapy with an NS5A inhibitor plus PEG and ribavirin. Relatively small study, but still very nice efficacy. Um, but resistance is an issue, and this is some monotherapy data at the 60 milligram dose, which is kind of the dose going forward. These are all genotype 1A subtype patients, and what you see with monotherapy, again, very dramatic four-log decreases over the first couple days, but then with five days of monotherapy continued, everybody starts breaking through and, and coming back up with resistant variants at various positions uh, in monotherapy. So again, much like protease inhibitor is very potent, but you also, if you do monotherapy, see quick uh, selection of resistant variants. There's also a difference in the resistance barrier for NS5A inhibitors between 1A and 1B. It's a little different in that here it's largely a functional difference in resistance barrier. So in genotype 1A, there are some mutants that are just not seen in 1B. There actually are, are different variants present at baseline. But what I'll highlight here for the most common mutation seen, particularly this 93 variant, which is seen frequently in the clinic, in a 1A background, that same amino acid change causes you know, well over a thousand-fold change in the activity of the drug, whereas when you're in the 1B background, that same mutant only causes about a 25-fold shift in the activity of the drug. So there's also a functional difference in the resistance barrier between subtypes for some of the NS5A inhibitors. Now, clinically, how much difference does that make? It's hard to say, but there's certainly some evidence from the interferon-free trials that this is of clinical significance. So this is kind of my summary slide of the compounds that are at least advanced into far into phase two or in phase three studies, um, highlighting all of the classes. So up here in black, I have nucleoside inhibitors, nucleotide inhibitors. <clears throat> Mericitabine is a nucleoside, a cytidine nucleoside, so it doesn't have that first phosphate on it already. So it needs to be phosphorylated intracellularly, including the first phosphorylization step, which is generally the rate-limiting step. So this accumulates triphosphate somewhat slower in cells. Um, and in the JUMP-C trial, you can see SVR rates were really modest, 57%. Um, now, the control arm in this study was around 35%, so there was a big delta. But what's been seen with these is if you looked at end of treatment, almost 90% were undetectable, and then there was a large relapse rate when they stopped the, the, nucleotide, the nucleoside in this case. So um, that's in contrast with 7977, which is a nucleotide, so it already has that first phosphate on there. So it, it presumably reaches triphosphate levels much more quickly in cells. It's also administered as a prodrug to improve absorption. Um, and here you can see in the atomic study just 12 weeks of the nucleoside given once a nucleotide given once a day plus peg ribavirin, 90% were cured in genotype 1 patients um, in the atomic study. And we'll come back to some of the interferon-free studies. My group here in blue are next-generation protease inhibitors. Semeprevir, or this is TMC-435 that I showed you some slides on before, um, BI-201-335, and Deneprevir. Um, all you can see here given once a day or twice a day, um, various times they're given with pegylate interferon and ribavirin, but what you see here is sustained virologic response rates now really approaching 80 to 85 percent kind of across the board with these next-generation protease inhibitors, again, with now what is easier to administer once daily therapy with better side effect profiles, at least initially, than what we've seen with particularly tilaprovir and bosepravir. Decladosphere is the NS5A antagonist that I showed you a little bit about. So at 10 or 60 milligrams, again, 83 percent SVR with PEG-RIBA. Tegobavir is one example of a non-nucleoside inhibitor, only 56% SVR, which looked the same as pegribavirin in this, in this study. Um, there were some imbalances in IL-28B distribution in that study, um, but still I think highlights that probably non-nucleosides in general are going to be less potent um, than our other classes. 
And then the last one I threw in here is actually not what we would call a direct acting agent. So it's, it's target. This is a cyclophilin inhibitor, which works on cyclophilin A and its interaction with the HCV polymerase and NS5A. Um, and you can see here also, um, when given for 48 weeks with pegravivirin, a nice 76% SVR rate, although this compound currently is on clinical hold for some uh, pancreatitis issues. Um, so interferon-free studies. There were several that came out a few years ago that highlighted some important distinctions. So we had what we've seen with interferon-free therapy with dual therapy, if you do low barrier dual therapy, um, low barrier would be a protease plus a non-nucleoside in particular, what we saw was rapid failure with breakthroughs. Um, if you add in a high resistance barrier agent, so now looking at a nucleoside or a nucleotide plus a protease or an NS5A, you don't see any breakthrough. So that high barrier to resistance certainly prevents breakthrough at least early in therapy. Um, and this is what I'll highlight here. So you can probably guess what two agents were given here or whether there was a high barrier compound. There was here. This is a protease plus a nucleoside, as opposed to this study, particularly in blue, where you saw a protease plus a non-nuc. Um, uh, you saw rapid breakthrough during therapy. So again, a nucleoside plus a PI, high barrier combination, low barrier combination with breakthroughs. And then the other point, ribavirin, especially if you have a low barrier compounds, is going to prevent some breakthroughs early on. I think I've already kind of beaten this horse to death. So again, differences in, in resistance barriers based on the subtypes. It relates back to the number of nucleotide changes. You need to affect the same amino acid change. And in the 1B background for the 155K mutant, you need two nucleotide changes to get the same amino acid change you get with a single nucleotide change in 1A. Um, and I mentioned the functional barrier with NS5A inhibitors. So now in the last, uh, you know, 10 minutes or so, we'll talk about some of the interferon-free regimens that we've seen so far. Um, the first one I want to highlight was really the first study to prove that we could cure patients without using interferon. This was the study that looked at an NS5A antagonist, again, Decladosphere plus an NS3 protease inhibitor, osinepravir. Um, and this was published in the New England Journal uh, by Anna Locke um, in the last year. So it looked at, again, NS5A plus protease for 24 weeks versus NS5A plus protease plus PEG ribavirin, so-called quad therapy for 24 weeks. And this was in a very difficult-to-treat population. These were all previous interferon null responders. So they had less than a two-log decrease during their prior, prior interferon and ribavirin therapy. Small numbers, 11 patients who got dual therapy, 10 who got quad. You can see the genotype distribution here. And this shows you what happened on therapy for those patients. So again, everybody had a nice initial viral load decrease over the first week or two. But then you started to see people breaking through during continued administration. This is just the arm that got dual therapy. This is not the quad therapy. In quad therapy, everybody was suppressed and no breakthroughs were seen during therapy. Um, so you saw here six breakthroughs during therapy, another person breakthrough after therapy was stopped. This patient was interesting in that pre-treatment they had an R155K variant that was prevalent and they broke through with an R155K with the addition of the NS5A resistant mutant when they broke through. So overall, if we look at this group though, in this arm, these 11 patients, still a third were cured. Four out of the 11, interestingly, both of the 1B patients were cured. Um, again, possibly relating to the fact that there's a higher resistance barrier for both protease and, and NS5A antagonists in 1Bs, although it's tough to say with two patients. Obviously, if they broke through, um, that was the other thing. Their baseline viral load was associated with breakthrough in this study, so if they had a higher viral load, they were more likely to break through. Um, and if they did break through, you saw dual class resistance when they broke through, as you might expect. Um, this study has actually been kind of replicated and expanded on. 
Japan, as it turns out, has almost exclusively genotype 1B hepatitis. And so um, Dr. Suzuki presented this at EASL in 20, in just this past year. They did a, a trial involving 40, over 40, I think 43 or 44 genotype 1B patients in Japan that were either prior interferon non-responders or had some reason they couldn't take interferon, intolerant or ineligible. Um, and in that study, um, they saw 77% of those 44 patients were cured with this regimen, just an NS5A antagonist plus a protease inhibitor. So, again, I think kind of verifies or expands that, in, you know, in genotype 1B subtype patients, this regimen actually is, is fairly efficacious, um, and probably more so than we might expect, again, based on the resistance modeling I talked about. This, this regimen certainly does not deliver a four-mutation barrier um, in 1As, and that's probably why it fails. You can kind of argue and fudge whether you might call it a, a, a four-resistance barrier in genotype 1Bs because of the functional issues, and you need at least two mutations to get the 155K. Um, and this just shows you the resistant variants. I won't belabor it, but again, all got dual-class dual resistance if they failed. One issue I do want to bring up, though, um, which gets back, to, gets back to the stopping rules that Susanna highlighted, and something I think we're used to thinking about in HIV is, you know, Continuing a failing regimen can actually be detrimental aside from the viral breakthrough. Do you continue to select for resistance? Do you cause evolution and eventually select for a more fit variant? This is just one patient from the, 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 the quad arm of the study, or sorry, the dual arm that then had interferon added. So they got NS5A plus PI, had a nice decrease, but then broke through and had pegylated ribavirin added, pegylated interferon and ribavirin added, but continued on the NS5A and the protease as well. And this is what they did. They came down a little bit with the ad addition of interferon and ribavirin, but came back up and had, so essentially had exposure to a failing regimen that included a PI and NS5A for, you know, six months. And I think it's interesting to see what happened to the protease resistance mutations. Initially, they had a D168Y and A, which are single nucleotide changes that cause high full change in resistance but are very unfit variants. And then what you see with continued exposure, they eventually selected for a D168T, which looks as fit or more fit than wild type and causes still a relatively high full change in resistance, but you can see it's a two-nucleotide change. Um, you know, we don't know yet, but I think it just highlights the importance of, you know, if they're failing, there's really no reason to continue, so you should really be attuned to stopping if patients are failing and breaking through and following the stopping rules. And there's always this at least, I think, theoretical concern in the back of our minds that, you know, if you continue exposing them, are you creating, you know, more resistant variants or more fit variants that are resistant, and will these persist for a longer period of time once you stop therapy? So now I'm going to finish with some of the more recent um, interferon-free trials. So this is the Gilead-120 studies, it's called. It's an interferon-free quad therapy study. So it's an NS5A antagonist plus a protease inhibitor plus a non-nucleoside plus ribavirin. So that's your interferon-free regimen. Um, there were two doses, either a lower dose of the NS5 antagonist or a higher dose. In this higher dose arm, patients were eligible to get shortened therapy down to 12 weeks um, if they were undetectable by week two. So we've heard about RVR, which is week four. Now this is VRVR, so very rapid virologic response, which is week two negativity, just to confuse everybody. Um, and the thing this study did, so if you made the VRVR in the second arm, we re-randomized patients to get either 24 or 12 weeks to see if there was any difference. And Mark Slukowski presented this data at the last EASL meeting on behalf of the study group. Um, and so here's some of the early data. So this is the percent of patients that reached that two-week undetectability. Um, and Susanna alluded to the fact that IL-28B, so here is CC or non-CC. So um, in some of these, maybe what you could call weaker regimens or regimens that don't possess a very high barrier compound, even though this was four drugs, 
you see a difference between how IL-28BCC versus non-CC patients behave at least early. So a much higher percentage were undetectable by week two if they were CC. And you also see a genotype-subtype difference. These are both the columns or the subtypes. But with um, uh, genotype 1As, maybe not quite getting as frequent negativity by week two, especially if they're also non-CC. Um, and then in ARM2, with a higher dose of the NS5A antagonists, um, you start to wipe out some of these IL-28B differences, at least in the early virologic responses. There still certainly is potential for that to have impact on relapses and ultimate SVRs. Um, and then if you look at the patients who broke through, again, you see a striking difference based on subtype, with 1As breaking through much more frequently um, in both group dosing groups than 1Bs, again, back to this resistance barrier issue. Um, and the ones who did break through all had triple-class resistant variants, as you would expect. They had protease, NS5A, and non-nucleoside resistant variants, all triple, triple resistance if they broke through. So here's the interim SVR data we have. Um, in, the, in the patients who got the higher dose of NS5A, there were some who got the 12-week arms. And so after four weeks off therapy, still 96 97% were undetectable. There was a little degradation, so at week 12 SVR, um, was about 80%, but not all the patients had made that time point. So we only had about 26 in follow-up at that point. Um, if you look at 24 weeks, there are less patients that had made this at the time um, this data was presented. But you can see um, if they got 24 weeks, um, you know, by, by definition, these patients all had to be negative by week two because otherwise they had interferon added, right? So 100% um, maintained that four weeks off. It's interesting to see here, you see this little bit of drop-off with the lower dose of the NS5A antagonist, but again, there's only four or five patients. So more data to come. Um, I will mention that everybody who, almost 90% who got PEG then subsequently suppressed if they were still detectable at week two. Um, Copilot study, now this is one looking at a boosted protease inhibitor with a non-nucleoside plus ribavirin in genotype one treatment-naive patients. Um, at two different doses and a group that was prior interferon non-responders. Um, these are just the demographics. Interesting, as you might expect, though, in patients who had previously failed, there were no CCs in that group. Predominantly, almost exclusively 1A. This was a, a U.S. study. But very nice results. I'll just focus on SVR12. So for the two treatment-naive groups that the two doses of protease inhibitor, 95 and 93% SVR12, and there's actually that, that number is the same for SVR24. Now, you know, only about 15 patients per arm, but well over 90% cured with just 12 weeks of a boosted protease plus a non-nuke plus ribavirin in genotype 1 naives. And actually, in both of these arms, there was only one patient that failed in each arm, and both stopped within two weeks because of medication intolerance or noncompliance. So of the patients who finished therapy, there were no patients who were not cured with this regimen. But again, small numbers. Now, a much different story in the patients who had previously failed interferon and ribavirin. I think this is really the patient population that we're all still scratching our heads about. What is it about these people? As I told you, none of these people had CC. Um, and if you look at the viral kinetics on therapy, these patients initially suppressed, but they were breakthroughs, and the, their viral loads came back up during therapy as well as increased relapse rates. So I think this is a very interesting population that we need to learn a lot more about what's really going on. Um, Again, as expected, if they did fail, they had dual-class resistance with protease and uh, non-nucleoside resistance mutations. The last two studies I'll talk about in the last couple minutes, the electron study, so this is, again, a nucleotide inhibitor plus ribavirin. I'll just focus on these arms that did not get interferon. There were interferon-containing arms in the electron study as well, but we'll focus on the arms that just got uh, a nucleotide either alone or with ribavirin. Um, on, on treatment kinetics look the same. Pretty much anybody that has gotten this drug, there's been 
essentially no breakthroughs during administration of this nucleotide. Nobody breaks through on therapy um, unless they just stop the drug. So everybody looks the same on therapy, but it's when you finish therapy that you see differences come out in these populations. And so that's what it's showing here. Um, just focus on a couple of the groups. So the blue bar, genotype 2-3 naives, everybody suppressed the whole way through, and everybody appears to be cured, at least with relatively small numbers of patients. If you take out ribavirin, you get a high relapse rate, and about 60% are cured instead of 100%. If they're genotype 2-3s who have failed interferon and ribavirin therapy before, you do pretty well, but at least four weeks off therapy, about 80% remain undetectable. Um, we need longer follow-up data and more patients to really feel confident about that. The genotype 1 patients, if they were treatment naive in this study, after four weeks, 88% remain negative with just GS7977 and nucleotide plus ribavirin. Now, I will say there's another study, the quantum study, which had an arm that was the same treatment, so 12 weeks of 7977 plus ribavirin. And in the quantum study, this number was only 59%. So, again, we need larger numbers of patients, but relatively encouraging for interferon, genotype 1, interferon-free for naives. But then the null responders is where you saw this huge relapse rate uh, again, all, you know, in, out of all nine patients that were evaluated, eight relapsed. So, um, but they relapsed very early, as shown here. So they were all undetectable on therapy, and as soon as you stopped, you saw this breakthrough and relapse, at least in eight of the nine patients. Um, they haven't completed all the sequencing, but um, they've sequenced five of the eight relapsers, and they didn't find any 282T by population or deep sequencing, which I think is also interesting about what's going on here and what happens, why they relapse here if there's no resistant variants that you can detect. Um, the last study to finish, NS5A plus a nucleotide, so 797 again plus the, the, the cladosphere, with or without ribavirin. Don't pay attention to the different arms because it doesn't matter. Um, for genotype 1 patients anyway, at least at four weeks following therapy with an NS5A plus a nucleotide, they had 100% were still undetectable four weeks off therapy. Um, ribavirin didn't seem to matter for this combination in this small subset of patients. Um, but again, we need longer-term follow-up to be confident that there aren't going to be some later relapses. Um, so to finish my kind of summary, resistant variants are seen with virologic failure with protease inhibitors plus PEG-RIBA. Um, in interferon-free regimens, it's multi-class resistance. Um, nucleosides certainly appear to be very robust um, and maybe be the exception to that. The long-term impact of these variants is not known, and that's where we need some studies to find out is there going to be impact on later therapies. We know they decay, but will they come back with a vengeance if you re-expose patients if they're enhanced at a low level? And certainly interferon-free regimens, that would probably be the biggest concern. Um, and then I think as we're all alluding to, that you know, this field is going to move remarkably fast over the next few years with multiple agents probably being approved over the next, you know, one and a half to two years. Um, and further down the road, I think, you know, for most patients, um, I at least believe we're going to be able to craft interferon-free regimens for the vast majority. Um, and, and I think we'll stop there. We're doing questions now. Well, let's uh, start to uh, – we have to say, take some questions. You come to the mic, you get uh, priority. Um, so, you, you know, you've been in the clinic seeing patients and you've been uh, looking to the future and seeing these drugs coming through clinical trials. How is the imminent arrival of, the, of these uh, changing your practice right now? Yeah. So, I, as you mentioned, I treat pretty much exclusively co-infected patients, and we expect there probably is going to be a little bit of a delay. Um, I would say I'm probably not quite as extreme as Susanna is. Uh, so, I think we treat, we treat most of our F3s or early cirrhotics. 
still with triple combination therapy with a protease plus peg riba. Um, I, I agree with her, though. Certainly for the zeros, ones, or twos, um, we're generally holding off or trying to get them in clinical trials. Um, I, you know, and then the other issue comes up is, are you hurting them if they fail a protease inhibitor therapy? And I, I don't think we know yet. I'm hopeful that if we have an NS5A and a, and a nucleoside approved, that maybe we won't be doing them much disservice if they don't, if they don't get a sustained response now. Everyone needs an answer for the patient that says, okay, give me, when am I going to be able to be cured without interfering? Yeah. Give, me a, give me a month. Give me, give me a, a month. Yeah. So we'll, let's send everyone away with a refreshed answer. Oh, my gosh. Because we're always let's updating see. our answers. When you, when you were asked that last week in your clinic, what did you say? Yeah. Um, I have this argument with some of our other attendings in the clinic, and there's, a, there's actually a steak dinner riding on this. So. Um, um, <laughs> He gave me five years, and I said, no problem. Um, I, I think probably within about two years, we'll have maybe not approved interferon-free regimens, but there'll be things out there that if you want to, you could pick from. Okay. Um, so I, you know, plus or minus two years. Okay, go, please. Um, you made a good argument for not checking a genotype yeah. prior to treating treatment-naive patients. What about for treatment-experienced, or so a null responder? Would you yeah. check a baseline genotype? Is there any data to support doing it or not doing it that you know of? The, there's no data I know of. I mean, the, I guess the best data would be those, you know, poorly interferon-responsive patients in, from Bocephavir Phase three trials who had baseline-resistant variants. None responded, but, you know, it was a handful of patients. Um, and you'd probably be testing you know, a lot of prior nulls to find maybe 1% that you detect a baseline variant in. So, so we haven't done it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the nulls, it, it's going to be driven. If they're a prior null and they have advanced fibrosis, you're probably going to try it anyway. I, there you might argue, you know, you'd look at your on-treatment kinetics and maybe you want to do a lead-in and see what they do at all, but nulls are probably not going to do much. You, you mentioned this uh, a bit, but say, say uh, would you order resistance testing in anyone? Um, not right now, really. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't, I don't think there's enough. Again, you won't have the numbers of patients for a baseline resistance test, and it's going to be few and far between that you find a, a predominant variant. Um, and then when they fail, I think you can almost predict. So, so again, aside from that first patient we tried it, and we don't, we don't send resistance tests at all right now. And the follow-on question is that with upcoming interferon-free, is that where you think you're going to yeah. probably want to? I mean, I think you, we definitely need the data, but, you know, we kind of have this safety net of interferon ribavirin if patients are responsive and there's no kind of at least signature resistance mutations associated with that, so you kind of get a pass. But you know, I could certainly imagine if you're using interferon-free regimen that's, you know, two or three agents, and if you have baseline protease and NS5A-resistant variants, it's probably going to be very few, but I also imagine they wouldn't do very well. So we just need the data there, though. It's hard to say. This is just a long one. Sorry, it's taking me <laughs> Poor handwriting. Yeah. Um, okay, given the fact that, uh, that off... I just can't read it. I'm sorry. I'm getting most of the words, but I can't do it. Um, <laughs> Does anyone want to come to the mic and ask their questions that haven't been asked yet? Because I'm having trouble with that one. Um. Yeah, something about, given the fact that off-drug pressure HCV reverts back to wild type mm -hmm. in 16 to 18 months, would you recommend someone who's failed interferon or interferon sparing regimen that you'd wait 
24 months before oh, you how reach long, how long would you wait? Question. Yeah. I mean, I guess based on what we have, I suppose, you know, that actually thinking about it and there was yeah. questions about resistance testing, you know, in the future that might be somewhere where I guess you could consider it. You had somebody who previously failed, but you know you have viable options that now include, you know, one of the medications with the cross resistance for what you're going to re-expose them to. You might check and make sure that's gone away, but we still don't know if they may be enriched below what you'll detect by a standard resistance test, which is only going to be 20, 25 percent of the quasi-species. Um, and that may still have an impact, we just don't have the data.